Everything is bigger in Texas, including climate change. But luckily, Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world gather to work with titans of industry to build a technology that will reduce emissions and power a low-carbon future. We sit down with those changemakers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with leaders from the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I am Nada Ahmed. And this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Welcome back to the show. We're here with uh, Rawan Rashid, and he's the CEO and founder of Helix uh, Earth Technologies. Helix Earth Technologies is taking technology originally developed for space and bringing it back down to Earth uh, to decarbonize the built environment and heavy industries. Uh, is it is it fair to say that you you were a rocket scientist? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's what, <laughs> that's what people say, and so I guess I. I claim. I guess I take that title. I wasn't working on rockets yeah. per se. I was working on uh, developing life support systems. Yeah. So it was. Uh, it was all the systems that would keep people alive in space. Mm-hmm. And so you know, in space, board ISS or Orion, you know, you you have to do things like generate your own atmosphere, mm-hmm. recycle urine so that you can you know drink fresh water every day, and um, and things like you wouldn't think about, which is like just trace amounts of ammonia that come off your body. You have to. You have to consider that and you have to actually filter the air of those small trace amounts mm-hmm. of ammonia that are coming off your skin because eventually it'll build up to a high enough concentration that mm. it kills you. Mm. And so those are the things that we, we worked on. And so we got to work with astronauts and we got to work with cutting edge scientists and, and engineers as well. And so that was really fun. It was really a fun time. But mm. yeah, maybe if you want to say rocket scientist, then <laughs> I guess I, I won't claim that title. <laughs> but if you want to say that, I'm, I, won't, I won't stop you. Yeah. And and the technology we work on itself um, was originally related to fire suppression, yep. if I remember. And and so walk us through how that leads us to decarbonization, HVAC, and and, and where this technology is going. Yeah, absolutely. So what we, as is the case with like a lot of things in in a good, different environment or, or especially in space, uh, you know, you kind of get cornered in a space where you have to solve a problem with like a bunch of constraints. I actually, more and more that I think that, that I think about this, it's when you constrain yourself, you that's when creativity really mm-hmm. like, it comes out. Um, mm-hmm. That's when you have to create really uh, creative solutions. It's sort of like I don't know if you if you have a family that mm-hmm. is poor uh, mm-hmm. or like not doesn't mm-hmm. have uh, the means to you know purchase all the things that you need as a family. Then you come up with creative ways to sort of close up the gaps. And so I don't know. I think about design, engineering, and entrepreneurship in that same way. You know, we we had basically this problem uh, in space. About around some of the, the safety teams, they said that we're going to fight fires for the first time using a uh, micrometer size droplet uh, spray of water. So we're mm-hmm. going to use, we're going to shoot these tiny droplets of water towards the fire. We're going to put it out that way. And after a fire is put out, what you need to do is actually clean up the cabin of all of the things that off gas from a fire. So like volatile organics, acid gases, carbon monoxide. So to do this, they made this big filter called the smoke eater filter it has a bunch of layers that that actually filter out those constituents but all those layers to do their job have to be have to be exposed to dry air and so what this team did originally is they put like a HEPA filter as a pre-filter to this whole assembly to filter out the droplets that you that you use to put out the fire in the first place and immediately it clogged Mm. and so we had to come up with a new solution for droplet filter filtration in space to capture these micrometer sized droplets, these super tiny droplets of water, 
you had a very low pressure drop budget. So the thing that you'd put in there couldn't obstruct the airflow too mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. It couldn't have any moving parts. You were constrained to a certain size and it had to have a high airflow that would go through it. So there was all these like different constraints and nothing existed off the shelf for us. And so we created this new filtration method mm-hmm. um, and we ended up filing a patent for it, ended up finding out it was novel. And then I took that to be part of my PhD dissertation at Rice. Hmm. And mainly did research on that to see, hey, what, what can we do with this technology here on Earth? What are the, some other application spaces that this technology could serve? And so what we had developed, we found out, was a was one of the most efficient ways to capture small droplets um, with no moving parts in a filter that was really cheap and easy to build. And so what that allowed us to do is is solve and address a whole bunch of problems in climate tech. And so one of them being air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can actually help reduce air conditioning energy loads by more than 50% using this technology to essentially just absorb moisture out of out of airstreams. Happy to go through the details of that, but that's sort of maybe the high level of, of the trajectory of how that happened and how we got to this new technology that, and that eventually became the foundations of Helix Earth, the company. Yeah. Hmm. And, go ahead. Yeah, and um, as I was doing some research on this, I, I saw a post where you mentioned that um, a, the air conditioning contributes to nearly as much CO2 emissions as all the current passenger vehicles combined yep. globally. Yep. I had no idea. Yeah, it's a huge, huge energy sink. It's a huge uh, hit on our environment. Mm-hmm. I think passenger vehicles are about 6% of the total CO2 emissions. Yeah. Um, last I checked, and air conditioning is about 4 Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's... Yeah, so transportation is where we usually focus on, right? When yeah. we talk about like energy transition yeah. and you know the big um, oil, oil, oil and gas companies. Yeah. So, so, what led you to? I mean, I guess it was your work at NASA that you decided, okay, this is something that we want to do within the air conditioning um, space. Where do you think it can have the most impact? I guess what, what's the goal? What's yeah. the go-to-market strategy? Yeah, that, that kind of falls out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and we talk about passenger vehicles. The unfortunate yeah. thing is, you know, passenger vehicles. Okay, we're they've been around almost as long as air conditioning, right? It's like nineteen mm. hundreds. The modern passenger vehicle came out, and then air conditioning in the maybe twenties and thirties. Uh, but fundamentally, air conditioning hasn't really changed much in this mm. last hundred years, whereas passenger vehicles have really uh, made improvements, especially in efficiency, right? Um, so, you know, what we're trying to do is provide one of the ways that you can fundamentally revolutionize the way you do air conditioning and the way mm-hmm. you do cooling. And so our go-to-market strategy is, is to actually build uh, retrofit devices. Mm-hmm. So when, when air conditioners cool air, part of the energy goes into actually dropping the temperature of the mm-hmm. air. Part of the energy goes into pulling moisture out of the air. So if you've ever seen like a, a window air conditioning unit with water dripping out of the back of it, mm-hmm. that's moisture being pulled out of the air at a constant rate. And you have to pull that moisture out to continue cooling the air. And... For the air conditioner to do that, that's one of the most inefficient ways to do it because that energy goes completely to waste. Mm-hmm. It's commonly called the latent load. It's seen as a parasitic load mm-hmm. and in a place like Houston can account for 70-80% of the total energy used. Mm-hmm. And wow. for 80% of the world, uh, that humidity load is more than 50% of the energy used in the air conditioning cycle. So mm-hmm. 2% of the world's CO2 is coming from this parasitic wasted mm-hmm. load. And so what we want to do and what we're doing in, mm-hmm. is, is uh, we're building retrofit devices Mm-hmm. as an add-on to existing air conditioners, targeting first commercial space. Okay, yeah. Um, that would take the humidity out of the airstreams yeah. and and do so at a much more, uh, at a much lower energy use than, than what the air conditioner would use. And so we can, our estimations uh, state that we can 
or suggest that we can reduce the energy use by 40 to 70 percent even uh, net of our system's energy use. So that's really the goal is to yeah, is to deliver these add-on devices for, for yeah. the more than two billion air conditioners on the market and help reduce their energy use and help decarbonize that sector. Yeah. So re reduce the energy use by 50 percent. That's that's huge. Yeah. 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 Mm. And so I, I think I've seen mm. a sample of the, the separator. Uh, and I'm, I'm imagining, does this replace the filter that sits in front of my HVAC at home? Or is this, you, you also described it as a device and not as an insert. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, that tells me it, it, there's a little more to it than uh, than that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's not like mm -hmm. a drop-in filter. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. like a, it's like a maybe uh, more a better way to think about it is just that like a, like what you mentioned a device like mm -hmm. an add-on box that mm -hmm. that's a self-contained device. And so essentially, what it does is it takes air that would come into the air conditioner, say hot, humid air from mm -hmm. the outside, treats the air so that it's now delivering dry air to the air conditioner, and then and then reduces the latent load on mm -hmm. the air. And then now the air conditioner can do its job much more effectively and much more mm -hmm. efficiently, and we take care of the humidity load that way. And so yeah. it's it's more like an add-on box, a self-contained mm. system that we're mm. delivering, basically. Mm. Yeah. So where are you now in the development of it and testing it and deploying it? Yeah, technology? good question. Yeah. So so we we've developed uh, lab scale systems. Mm -hmm. So something that's about you know one tenth scale, mm. and we're now in the process of actually scaling up the technology to a commercial scale. The main market that we're focusing on is commercial uh, mm -hmm. HVAC systems, commercial air conditioning systems, and so. We're about a month out from scaling up our system to a commercial unit scale for uh, for one of the main sections of the of the uh, of that device that box, mm -hmm. and then there's a, the other half of it that we're still working on that we're about six to nine months out on. And so the goal is in the next twelve months to to scale up all the key components and then deliver some pilots um, uh, for different uh, from uh, for some of the different customers that are interested in in, in our technology. And so. Um, so that's really the goal is in 12 months to, to deliver some pilots that, that prove the, the efficacy of the system at a commercial scale. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's sort of what the plan is over the next year. Mm -hmm. I assume you're, you're thinking about it as like a retrofit because that's an easier path to market than like going straight to an OEM and saying, please, pretty please put this in the front mm -hmm. of the device. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, it, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's an easier sell. You can, you can. You can sort of chart out your own destiny that way. We were actually going. That was actually the first thing we wanted to do. Is hey, let's make a let's make this device and show that this works, and go to OEMs and hopefully they'll integrate. And I changed that whole thesis because of customers. So mm -hmm. I was talking to customers, building owners, building engineers, and kept getting the same message, which was forget about the OEMs. Because the first thing I thought was, hey, once you strap this thing into a an air conditioner, you're going to avoid warranties and all that. Mm -hmm. Spoke to people and they're like. Forget about the OEMs. Like we don't even have a good warranty with them, mm. anyways. It only covers components for like a year. Mm -hmm. It's so bare bones. Mm. I would rather you just sell me a box that does what I want it to do, uh, which is remove the humidity. And, and much of these building engineers, they know about this problem. Mm. And so they're like, they're like, if you can build this and it can actually reduce the load in the way that you're saying, sell me a box. I'll retrofit it. I'll deal with all the consequences if there are any consequences. I I guess so. it's a good it's a good lesson in like who gets the ROI, right? Yeah. It's like the OEM is is it's like a nice feature, but does maybe it gets them a little more competitive. But the person who really saves the money is um is the the building manager. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is like OEMs, they're not necessarily incentivized to to innovate. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see across a whole bunch of heavy industries, a whole bunch of, of commercial sectors and yeah. even mm -hmm. even customer um facing uh, companies is that Unless you're forced to innovate, if you already have a product that you're selling that's making money, why would you spend money on R&D? R&D is uncertain, it's expensive, it 
brings in a lot yeah. of a, a lot of uh, points of failure. And so why would you spend money on changing what already is selling? Yeah, I think that's one of the main issues is that the OEMs are comfortable. <laughs> OEMs are comfortable, right? So they're not forced to innovate. Yeah. What they're building sells and why why reinvent the wheel if you don't have to, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that, I think that's where that's where startups really come in is they can they can sort of force these larger uh, players to 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 make changes if somebody comes in and disrupts the market. Hmm. And and your your product is pretty as as in the HVAC systems they're pretty standard overall so you can use it in you don't have to kind of customize it to different uses. Uh, depends. Or different systems, yeah. Yeah, it depends. Mm -hmm. So there, there, there are sort of at different scales, there are, are um, typical sizes. Mm -hmm. So you might have like, for, for example, mm -hmm. like packaged units, mm -hmm. five and 10 ton air conditioners. These are really common. You might have one on your roof right now, yeah. providing your cooling. And mm -hmm. those all come in pretty standard sizes, mm -hmm. almost regardless of the manufacturer. But one nice thing about what we're doing with our technology too is, it's very easy to customize the scale, so it's not too complicated in terms of in terms of this, you know, stretching it out. If I wanted to make it two feet wide, mm -hmm. and now I have a bigger application that needs to be four feet wide, and the maybe the shape needs to be a little bit different, mm -hmm. we can very easily uh, customize the shape as well. Obviously, you want to do you want to sort of focus on the the market or the sector that that sort of has the standard sizes, so you can you know rip out product and mm. and mm. and and that reduces costs and, and all that good stuff but some for some of these larger scale systems oftentimes you might have custom duct sizing custom components mm. and you know we can still address those markets as well mm -hmm. uh, with our tech and would it be something you would have to replace over time yeah that's a good yeah. question you the only thing you'd have to replace over time would be um this filter media that we we insert it's sort of like the secret sauce, mm -hmm. the, the thing that's the enabler, mm -hmm. um, and we will have. That's like really easy. Sort of like your home uh, filter for your HVAC system. You pop it in, pop in a new one. Uh, you know, pop out an old one, pop in a new filter. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy as that, and the the filter itself is not not very expensive for for like a five ton unit. Probably cost us a few bucks to build and make. Yeah. Um, so that'll be like a consumable, um, but overall, the rest of the components you know, have 10, 15 year lifetimes. Mm -hmm. So the, that's the goal is to have something that, that lasts that long and just has like a simple filter replacement and maybe topping off of some liquids and, and that kind of thing. But but overall low maintenance. Um, yeah. So. And I imagine for the filters, it might be cheap for you to make, but man, you're going to charge 95% margin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm certain. <laughs> I don't I don't charge for the five minutes. I charge exactly. for the, the years of development and the years yeah. of time it took exactly. to get there. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so this is... This technology is built out of the work that you did at NASA, as you spoke about, and then your PhD. And how did that work, like in terms of intellectual property um, and being able to take that technology that you maybe um, developed partly while yeah. you were working at NASA and then while you were doing your PhD? Yeah, that's a good question. IP is always an issue. Yeah, yeah. That with is any with mm. like with any company that comes out mm. of like a, a national lab, government group especially in a university, there's always issues around IP. Maybe aside from just a few different universities who have put in good practices for, mm. this is exactly how we execute exclusive licenses mm. for our technologies. The vast, otherwise the vast majority of universities, it's, it's just always a shit show. Yeah. I think MIT is one that has a good policy. Yeah. It's like, this is the standard boilerplate agreements. If you want to do this, we'll get you a license in a week. 
Yep. No problem. Mm. Um, do you, did you find that um, NASA was straightforward in terms of laying that out, or did they still have work to do? NASA is very straightforward. Okay. They're, they're very, very straightforward. And you can go on the website and you can just see, like, they have all their standard agreements. Like, okay, if it's a partially exclusive license, mm. here's the royalty percentage. If it's an exclusive license, here's the percentage range. And here's what it costs up front. And, like, they have all their stuff laid out just on their website, even. Yeah. So it's a very straightforward process with them. Unlike a university where you have to kind of negotiate with whoever took your meeting. Yeah. And they all have different ideas for what it should be. And nobody really knows like, yeah, yeah, nobody really knows like what it takes for a company to be successful. Yeah. So some people have ask ridiculous terms that make basically a company uninvestable as Mm. an example of of something that that could be done. Yeah. I, I guess it seems like universities are maybe not very clear on like their policy there, like, and what incentives they have or they should have in terms of when a technology is developed in their PhD programs, right? And that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly it. I, yeah. I think some of it's just like MIT, I think it's especially good because they have good cultural alignment yes. than the university because yeah. they're very clear. It's about getting technology out there for the benefit of man. It's yeah. like it's part yeah. of ethos. And I think Stanford's the same. And I would think most yeah. universities should do that, yeah. right? And, but not, yeah. Well, not, not actually, not all universities yeah. have that have mission. That, yeah. not all, not they don't have do. that mission, and, yeah. And not all of the, yeah. not, and not all the people working in their tech transfer offices, not all those lawyers there necessarily know what those things should be, right? So mm-hmm. sometimes, like, uh, there are folks that'll ask for, like, I want 5% of the company non-dilutive. Essentially, what that means is like you know you're only five percent forever. Yeah, yeah I want I'm gonna own five percent of your company forever, and basically that makes the company uninvestable. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So even from the university standpoint, what they would want is they would want the percentage of equity that they have in the company to be worth a lot. Mm. And if you if you do that from the get go, that company is going to be worth zero because yeah. it's not mm-hmm. going to be able to raise capital, and it's not going to be able to get off the ground because of that ridiculous term. Yeah. If you would ask for something more reasonable, then maybe the company would eventually become a billion dollar company. And yeah. then your small chunk that you took would be worth something. So even even like you're negotiating an exclusive license with a with an entity, but once you execute that, then you then now you're on the same team. Yeah. Then now it's like okay, how can we make this company successful so that it brings the most value to all the people who own or who have a stake the in the company. And so yeah. so it's it's yeah. it's a kind of a weird place for for a lot of tech transfer folks and yeah. tech transfer offices but 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 it is a common discussion of like how do we best approach this what's the best practice and, and i think there, there are universities who do it well but it's also interesting to think like you could you could look at an organization like nas and say there's a best practice here as well mm. yeah and it, you don't have to necessarily stay within the university framework mm-hmm. um and i know it's a it's a very common discussion here in texas because yeah. mm. uh, i think we're we as texans are realizing that that keeping everything locked behind this kind of closed gate is is not good for innovation and not right. good for all that mm. technology that gets developed right and, and the nice yeah. thing about uh, like a government organization right like like nasa for example is their their mission is not to make money it's not yeah. to make mm. profit their mission is to is to have their technology go and have the maximal impact in mm. the world mm-hmm. and for them to say hey look at all these great things that happened because of the your taxpayer dollars that invested in this mission and that's like what they want to yeah. have. And so they're, they're incentivized to give good terms to companies that can make something out of a technology or, mm. or some piece of IP, right? Mm. Versus like maybe at the tech transfer office, somebody's bonus is tied to like how much mm. money does this IP bring in, right? Which is like, you know, yeah. there's a bit of a different incentive structure there, right? Yeah. I always joke that like uh, the 
U.S. government's the best venture capitalist <laughs> yeah. because like they have their returns locked in because they will always get their taxes. It's like a baked-in <laughs> dividend on any investment, yeah. you know. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's the strategy: just grow the revenue because yeah. that that income tax will come back. Exactly, you know? hundred yeah. 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 percent. Yeah. So, so given like the challenges of starting a startup, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there are IP challenges, um, getting funding, um, and just in general, everyone knows that being an entrepreneur is not easy. What made you take that leap from developing this technology, having worked for NASA, having this incredible experience to say, you know what, now I'm going to go and gonna start my that. own company? I just shut my brain off. Because <laughs> The logical brain. Yeah, yeah. the logical brain. Well, it, it mm. took, you know, like mm. there's a common saying for people who finish their PhDs that it takes a village for mm. somebody to get a PhD. And I think the same is true for entrepreneurship too. I would not have done this unless I had support around me and support from every aspect of my life. So support mm. from my family is one of them. Mm. But also, you know, at Rice, I was talking to you about the Innovation Fellowship Program mm. there. It's just sort of like this little incubator mm. that that you can go and you have some space to, to you know, it's, you have you have a full day on Friday to go and sit down with other people who are on the same journey as you. You have mentors there that you can bounce ideas off of. Like, how do I how do I get in touch with these people? I'm sending cold emails. Nobody's responding to me. And mm. it's okay. Let's let's figure out how to like craft your email. Let's figure out how to how you can you know strategize how you reach out to people so you can get better response rates. You know, just kind of. Build, that 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 community helped like build up that momentum for me, and then support from my PI, like go and do good mm. things. Like you know, the research is always going to be there. We'll mm. figure that out. Mm. You know, if you're passionate about this company, like go do that. And him giving me that space. So it, you know, if any one of those things wasn't there, then mm. it would have all crumbled and collapsed. But for me, it was more about it was more about like building up the momentum mm. with small wins along the way. Mm. And so so early on, it was like I'm just going to try something out. I'm going to shoot for whatever. I don't know what it is. And I'm going to take this technology. I'm going to start from the ground up and see what problems I can solve with it and see which one has sort of the biggest impact and the best case. Mm. That led me to sort of uh, apply to the Napier Rice Launch Challenge. Won that uh, out of 84 teams. Um, and then, you know, that just sort of built up momentum mm. slowly and surely. And I met my co-founder, um, Met him actually a few years ago at Rice. He's a Rice alum as well, but I met him again at the Innovation Fellowship, and he sort of helped mentor me and 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 coach me through the the pitch process to to enter that competition as well. And and you know, so, so, slowly but surely, things started to grow and build. Mm -hmm. um, him and I co-founded the company together, and I you know he really helped show the way of like, okay, here's where we are, and you know we can get this off the ground uh, if we do steps A, B, C, D. You know, sort of charting out that path. Um, so like, you know, one thing led to another mm -hmm. slowly, but surely things started to build up. But if I were to like, look back now and knowing everything that I know now, mm -hmm. if, if I, if I was to go right back to the start mm -hmm. and tell myself that I probably wouldn't do it. Cause it was just, it's just like so many things that you have to go through. Right. There's like, I think about it like four stools that mm -hmm. like four, four legs of a stool that you have to, to really hold up for mm -hmm. a company to be successful. You know, one of them is you have to have a good technology and a good product. So. Being in a PhD, we kind of had that, or, like, or at least the, the initial version of that. And the second is you have to raise money. Mm -hmm. How the heck do you even raise money? I don't mm -hmm. know. I'm, I'm doing mm -hmm. a PhD. I've never done this before. Mm -hmm. Then you have to go and recruit a team. Mm -hmm. You can't offer competitive salaries. Mm -hmm. You have to compete against big companies, but you have to still somehow bring in the best people mm -hmm. to come and work with you. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. have to sell them. That's hard. That's not mm -hmm. easy. Mm -hmm. And then you have to figure out your marketing and sales strategy. Mm -hmm. And like, again, 
you're from a PhD, how do you even figure that out? Yeah, you didn't do a PhD in marketing and sales. And no, hiring, right? so no, I did a PhD in yeah, engineering, right? No. So how do you do marketing and sales? Yeah. And so without any one of those four like legs of the stool, mm. it'll just collapse. Yeah. yeah, those all have to be there. Right. And so you know, pairing up with a co-founder who could really fill up some key mm. areas that I wasn't good at and help me mm. train up and learn those areas, mm. and then also just building up small wins along the way. Yeah, that's really what what yeah. got us to to build up the momentum to found the company and then to grow it to where we are today. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the first thing you said was like the product, right? And that, because in, in some sense, usually we tell startups that um, go talk to your customers, like make sure yeah. that you're solving a problem instead of designing mm. the solution. Yeah. But in some way you already had a, so much of a solution. Yeah. And then you had to go back and figure out, okay, what's the best problem <laughs> the solution yeah. is going to address? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's in general, I think people should always start with the problem first and mm -hmm. then come up with a solution. Um, I think because of going through the PhD process and, mm -hmm. and you know, doing the, the work at NASA and, and developing this technology and then, and then getting more funding from the government, I knew that I had a product that could solve some real problems. Mm -hmm. And so it was more of like figuring out where does this best shine? Mm -hmm. And is the market opportunity big enough that it makes sense to start a startup, to raise venture money for that? And so... So yeah, we kind of did a backwards way of, yeah. of you know, we kind of went with, okay, here's a, here's a hammer. Like, where are all the nails that this hammer can, you know, uh, can, can hammer in? Um, I, that's not the way I would start a company today if I were to do it. That's yeah. just kind of how that journey ended up for me in mm. the beginning. Um, I would, again, start with the problem first and then mm. work backwards. Um, but but I guess, how did you know when you did the exercise that... Um, it was like it was real that you you know you, you actually had product market fit mm -hmm. and and to to tell an anecdote that i don't tell often so the first startup i was part of um was a silicon engine company and um we like raised money and fizzled out in four months for for a number of reasons um but one of the things that became clear as we went through it is i'm pretty sure the company was started because the founder like just loved the technology so much that they wanted the like glory of starting a company <laughs> but it actually had no market yeah and and i think there's that challenge where you you're you've developed a new kind of control of of, a, of an engineered system yeah and and it, it has new functionality it should be valuable to someone how do you go from having a hypothesis that it should be valuable to knowing it's like it, it, the economics are going to work it's going to become a product how did you develop that conviction to say this is the right time to do this yeah that's a good point i think you at the beginning, you have to have a healthy lack of ego <laughs> in some senses because yeah, entrepreneurship's hard, man. Yeah. Like you gotta, especially even even like as you're building up a company and a team, you have to be aware enough of your, of your own capabilities and where you also lack because you're stuck with like I have to have ownership of everything and I have to be I have to be the person that like does all these things so that I can mm. the glory of it all. Then you're gonna stifle your business. You're gonna stifle mm. the company because there are. People that are better than you who could take things mm. off of your plate so that you can focus on the things that you shine at. So I think that, that for me, I've always like kind of not cared. Mm. I've always just were, was like, came up with the mindset of like, let's do something that works because that's what's going to have the best impact for, for everybody. Um, and I, as an individual, don't matter as much as what are the greater good. And so, so thinking about like product market fit and this technology mm. itself, I always was like, hey, if there's nothing out there for this, if there's no killer app for this, then then I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pursue it because mm. it makes no sense. I'm mm. gonna waste my time. I'd rather just go and start something different, start something new, or or go work at an early startup or do something else with my time 
uh, because it's not going to be worth it. So, so I, I sort of entered it with that mindset and really the, what, where it started was, was the, was the DOE fellowship. Mm. I, I proposed this idea of dehumidification, reducing air conditioning and energy loads to the DOE. And I had a lot of positive feedback from them and, and eventually was awarded this fellowship. That gave me an initial sort of line of sight on, okay, this is an actual problem that's real that we can affect. Mm-hmm. And then it, the, it came down to more of like, what's the size of the problem? And you can quickly find out that mm-hmm. it's a big problem. Yep. And then and then would customers actually pay for this? And how would your system look you know, as a product to a customer? And then talking to customers and, and just getting the feedback of, sell me a box, reduce the humidity, I'll pay for it. Mm-hmm. That just that hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, okay, this is what we have to do. Like we have to build dehumidifiers. And there's it wasn't as simple as like we're just gonna put our filters into a system. We actually have to build and figure out more than just the filtration part. That's an enabler, but there's other components to the system that you have to actually implement. So mm-hmm. it really came down to talking to customers yeah. more so than anything. Because you can it's oftentimes you can also have a thing that solves a really pressing problem, but either people don't want to buy it or it doesn't make economic sense because it's too expensive or it's too prohibitive to build because of some challenge in the manufacturing process or or in the mm. implementation there's a whole number of ways that 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 could all fail because of just a, a particular reason or a particular aspect that you didn't think about so for me it came down to just talking to customers and the more i spoke to customers the more i was excited and the more i was like okay this is what we have to do mm. and so that's that's really the the way I found out like product market fit and it just keeps it keeps happening to this day I talk mm. to mm-hmm. folks and they're like how fast can you build I'm like hold on we're still working, <laughs> we're still working on it yeah. um, so that, does that sort of answer that question I don't know yeah. if I, yeah. I, I sort of meandered no, to the answer it's but, good no yeah. I, mean, I think it's a very real kind of journey we all have to go through and it's funny now that I'm like pitching again um, you, when you start out like these conversations with people on, on the enterprise side of things they usually go into a conversation and they kind of start like this mm. yeah right and then you know, like when you start to get product market fit, like they start to like get really excited. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, yes, like I yeah. want to buy this today. Like, yeah. show me where to send the checkbook. Mm. You know, it's um, those are things you can't do on Zoom. Yeah, on, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but it it also speaks to like the you know the, that product market fit. You you in some ways you feel it when it starts to get there. Yeah. And I, I don't. I like to ask this question, entrepreneurs, because I don't know how to describe it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and it's the best. And in, in in software, it's easy to sort of gauge that because you can check you, the clicks. <laughs> yeah, you can check the click rate, or like yeah. how many subscribers mm. you have, or how many users do you have. So it's it's really easy to figure that out. And in hard text, a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. If you can, you know, say, hey, here's a here's a paper file <coughs> and here's an LOI. Like, I'm gonna sell you this thing. It's gonna cost this much to install. It's gonna cost this much to buy off of me. And this is what it'll do for you. And if they say, I'd buy that, mm-hmm. here's, here's my signature. Yeah, yeah. It's not a committing letter, but like. Yeah, I, I would be into that. And if you get one of if you get one person that does that and then two and then twenty, then that then you know that you have that you're onto something at mm-hmm. least, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the best way to gauge. There's there's no better way to gauge product market fit than a customer who's willing to pay you for it. Yep. That's yeah. that's how you know you have something that yep. that's like that's a, that's feasible at least. I wanna ask <laughs> I, I wanna go and, and talk about um how your um how your childhood kind of influenced your entrepreneurial journey. Um, yeah. I think we were talking before the recording or, or earlier in the recording um, about how uh, you weren't born here. 
um, yep. and and your family relocated to Oregon. But I am so I'm Kurdish. I was oh, okay. born in Northern Iraq. Okay, um, interesting. Yeah. It's a melting pot of people. Yeah, so yeah, there's yeah. a whole bunch of different yeah. Uh, yeah. folks, even people who have who are like from ancient backgrounds and ancient religions yeah. and things like that. Okay. So yeah, there's there's a lot, yeah. quite a quite a few people yeah. in Iraq. It's, it was it was never like the borders were never drawn yeah. to like encompass mm. like a single group of people the, it was the borders are drawn by british people <laughs> it was kind of drawn arbitrarily if you will mm. um but yeah so i'm from the northern part okay. of that that, okay. that country and um it's where primarily kurdish people live yeah, yeah. Mm. so we're distinguished from from arabs in the region yeah. and other folks and mm. so we have our own uh, culture our own mm. language our mm. own customs and all of that stuff and so i was born there um 95 oh i didn't and know you were actually born out there. i was okay. born there oh, yeah, i was born there and then we moved to oregon in 96. oh wait so you guys were, you were there like when it was occupied by the regime right? yes <laughs> yes before that's that was the reason why we came yeah, yeah that's the reason why we left yeah wow mm. okay yeah. Uh, a lot of a lot of things that were challenging back then yeah and so we moved to the states that uh, was a, maybe a year year and a half tell us about how that that uh how that shaped you, how you approach your journey today yeah, I mean, two prongs. So, so I think number one, it really starts with my my dad. You know, he passed away early in my life. Mm. I think when I was like eighteen years old mm. when he passed away. Um, but you know, growing up and and spending time with him, he he was an engineer as well, mm. civil engineer. But he always, I didn't, I didn't know like quite how much this impacted the way I view things until like many years later. Mm-hmm. But you know, he'd always say things like, "Don't use too much water. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. people don't have clean water, so don't mm-hmm. waste any water." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he would, he would constantly talk about things like climate change, and global warming and all these things because he, he understood all that stuff. And that really, as a kid, made me focus on, I don't know, something as simple as like opening up a wrapper. Like mm-hmm. I would feel guilty because I'm like, oh, this is so wasteful. Like it's just the, you know, I'm trying to eat this thing, but it's like encased in this plastic that won't degrade. Mm-hmm. I'm like 10 years old, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. thinking about that. And so, so, you know, spending time with, with him and growing up with, with him talking about these things, uh, you know, really kept the, the focus of, of the climate and our own impact on it, you know, in the forefront of my mind. Mm-hmm. And in addition, you know, he, again, he was an engineer. And so we used to always think about and talk about like science and watch documentaries together. And so that really sort of kept my interest in science and engineering throughout my whole life i actually was mm. was committed to not doing engineering when i went to, to when i went to university i was i was going to go to medical school like, i'm going go to <laughs> go to medical school that's what i'm going to do that's not a stereotype yeah. at all yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean i just wanted to do that because yeah. that's why i thought my interests were and mm. i i took physics for the first time in mm. in my first uh, semester in college and i was like so into it because mm. i was like oh i'm not going to be able to do as much of this stuff anymore i'm not going to be able to do too high level math and calculus if mm. i go to medical school and I just like felt a loss, and I was mm. like, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do engineering." I never looked back after that. Like for the first three weeks of my time at, at university, I just switched to an engineering track because I was just more interested in it. Mm-hmm. And I, I never looked back, mm. and um, and so so that's sort of how I studied engineering. But but yeah, it was all because of my childhood with with, mm. with growing up with my dad and, mm. and him just like becoming interested in in that you know early on. And, and even though I thought I didn't want to do it, it was like really a, a thing that was always in my mind. Um, and then also with growing up uh, in a community, I used I grew up with a lot of immigrants. Mm. Like, grew up with with a community of of maybe eighty percent folks that are immigrated to the U.S. Sort of in the th- same time frame that we did, and we had a lot of family friends who who they just went out and started businesses. Hmm. And you hmm. just see like, okay, they came from nothing. Maybe they were even illiterate in their own language back mm. home. Mm-hmm. Like they all they all they knew was to speak their own language. They didn't know how to read or write, but they came here. 
They learned the language. They learned how to read and write. And they started businesses that are successful. Now they live on the top of a hill with mm. all the millionaires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that was that. That also mm-hmm. really was uh, was a was a thing, factor that influenced me. It was just seeing that trajectory mm-hmm. and seeing what was possible to start from zero, literally zero, mm-hmm. from just the understanding of the culture, understanding the language, from a monetary perspective, having no money, and then getting to that point. I was like, okay, yeah. And so that that really that really seeing that growing up really made me believe that anything is possible Mm. i never i never really thought that like things were impossible or too challenging it was just like can you put the work in to make it happen that was always the mindset i had Mm. and so those two things really started to come together Mm. last year which Mm. was just when we started and founded the company Uh, i always knew i wanted to start a company Mm. at some point or start Mm -hmm. a business of some sort i always had that in my mind growing up and I was always interested in, in the environment and in engineering, and mm-hmm. somehow those two fronts came together uh, for me during my during my grad school, um, and that's how I that's that's sort of how the that that's sort of all is coming together in Helix Earth, which is like this interest for entrepreneurship and this interest in science and engineering, and then putting that together to to do something useful and mm-hmm. and, and something that's impactful to the world. I had this weird discussion the other day here in, in Houston where um, we were talking about black and brown founders. And I was like, oh, well, I know a lot of brown founders, you know, because they're Indian. And I, I was sending them to this uh, accelerator and the accelerator was saying, well, this is the wrong kind of brown. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like not overtly, but yeah. it was like obvious that like yeah. you guys are speaking, Jason, you're speaking in a different language because we, well, you know, we, we think about, uh, you know, supporting um, Latinos Latino or, and, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. black founders. And, and I, uh, there's a part of me that wonders if, um, you know, or, you know, East Asian, uh, Middle East uh, founders get kind of the short end of the stick because, in some ways, this is a very entrepreneurial community. It's 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 folks who maybe have come from nothing um, and had to build something for themselves. I, uh, my wife's um, uh, uh, father um, is like an entrepreneur in logistics and shipping, you know, and like works at shipping companies and helped build up these shipping businesses, um, but doesn't necessarily have the same support systems. And do you feel like that's that's a you've been disadvantaged or advantaged or is that just you just don't think about it you just move on (laughs) (laughs) um i i don't really think about it much i it has crossed my mind for sure and i i used to think about it because you know we were talking about Mm 9-11 and things changed a lot yeah Yeah. for a lot of people i knew um at that time like in the years after yeah um i mean a lot of people i i hear um like people within the like the Pakistani community who were here, right? I wasn't here except like when it happened, but they faced a lot of like discrimination, you know, like they mm-hmm. would go to the grocery store and like people would say yeah. the things and they'd be like, okay, we, we're not going out yeah. for yeah. a few months until yeah. this calms down. So I don't know if you faced that. Me, yeah. Your family. Definitely yeah. growing up, kids yeah. in school and yeah. even to this day. Especially when that. like, you know, like those years after 9-11, right? And yeah. He's probably Especially started elementary years. school school yeah actually my i think mm. my sister at the time she wore hijab she was mm. older than she was 10 years older than me and mm. she had to take it off yeah because of that because um, yeah. of the discrimination aspect um yeah. it was tough it, it was, was tough, really tough. Right? and then and yeah. then maybe you've heard of this as well but you always felt like you know there's somebody watching you for mm. for, for whatever reason yeah and there's the, also yeah. discrimination yeah all over the place and, i mean it's really unfortunate and whenever you traveled right like at the airports i would get so tired yeah. of like just always being pulled aside always, you yeah. always get the random check yeah at the airport, always, right? yeah always yeah. get the random mm-hmm. checks mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah that, that that was definitely 
people that I grew up with, they yeah. had those experiences and we did as well. And yeah, yeah in school, uh, kids and stuff especially you you know you knew the kids who like had the parents who were like, talking talking about that because the that. way that they would talk you mm-hmm. know oh, man um we got yeah we got into fights and things like that with other kids because of that but it's just a it's an experience and it, it, it at the end of the day um makes you stronger and mm-hmm. makes yeah. you better for that yeah. you know you learn you learn that you shouldn't do that to other people mm-hmm. for their backgrounds and yeah. the, their experiences mm-hmm. and you shouldn't judge a book by their cover by, by its cover right because you know how degrading that is mm. when somebody does that to you. So, you know, it, double-edged sword. You know, there's there's a negative because it was not an easy way to grow up. But also, it sort of molds you into becoming a better person. And I think that that was definitely true for me, but then also for, for other people I grew up with. Mm. You know, yeah. we, we all sort of share that same same sort of way of thinking. We, yeah. It's made us better rather than resentful, if you will. Yeah. 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 Do you find that still happens here in the Houston innovation ecosystem? It happens everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Every- okay. I, and I, yeah. I have the benefit of like looking yeah. super white. So like, <laughs> like, no, like I don't get that treatment a lot. Um, so I don't know. So that's why I wanted to yeah. ask. Yeah. It happens everywhere. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and there's definitely people that will just look at you from the moment they see you, they don't like you. Mm-hmm. And it's obvious. You can pick up on that. It's mm-hmm. obvious. Mm-hmm. I still have that to this day. Mm-hmm. You meet people and you know they don't like you. For no other reason. They don't even know who you are, but you know they don't like you. So that's that's something you feel all the time, and I will always feel that. It'll always be mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um and so that is that is kind of a kind of a big disadvantage, yeah. right? Like yeah. there's going to be a chunk of the po- you know, even if it's like a ten percent of the population that just does not like you or thinks differently of you because of just the way you look, that that's going to have a meaningful impact on your results in yeah. life. So you Did- have to mm-hmm. and by no means is somebody like me going to have yeah. Uh, I know there are certain certain groups of people that feel that even worse. Mm. You know, right. I have yeah. friends that mm-hmm. that come from different communities and different backgrounds who have it much worse than me, mm. and it's it's unfortunate. You know, it's mm. always there, and um, so I always feel yeah. that. Yeah. Sometimes the assumption that we make is that oh, just because you you're doing well now or managed to do well, like you didn't face the same discrimination that mm. I faced, right? Yeah. Um, and realizing that actually, yeah, no, most of us do face that yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and have faced that. And it does hurt, but we, um, yeah, we learn. It kind of helps us build our resilience, right? And then yeah. you you learn to kind of look away from that yeah. and then focus on people who do support you like many people mm-hmm. did. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah that's exactly mm-hmm. it. You don't mm-hmm. need, I don't need the whole world to like me. No. I just need, I just need, I just need one good person. Yeah. You know, I yeah. need one good friend and that's, I can, I can do the rest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I think totally that's, right. yeah, yeah. and that's something like, you know, when I work with a lot of women that I think women struggle with is like getting everyone to like mm. them. And it's just like being okay with like, actually it's better if some people don't like you, that means that you have yeah. something like important to say, or, you know, you're, you're doing something that, um, other people don't agree with or you're passionate about something yeah. or whatever that is like it's okay to be okay with people not liking you because yeah. our job is not to make the yeah. world like even, us even talking mm-hmm. to investors like i talk to investors mm-hmm. and some people overtly say nasty things mm-hmm. and i'm just like i could be dying i will not take your money <laughs> yeah yeah you know, i don't want you to yeah. like have yeah. anything to do with my life Mm. Yeah. yeah, you you gotta find the good energy and stick to the good energy. Exactly. That's, yeah. That's yeah. Really it. yeah. Yeah. And for for every one of those, mm. there are three, four people that yeah. are just amazing. Mm. So yeah. I think I I I'm I'm just a I'm just an optimist yeah. through and through. I think the good yeah. outweighs the bad yeah. in the world, and there's more good people than there are negative people. And yeah. I think that that's 
I, I, that's what I yeah. felt in life. But obviously, the, those negative instances hmm. do bring you down sometimes, yeah. And, yeah. and it does it does affect you. Even though, yeah. if you've grown up with it for many many years, you're just kind of numb to it. You right. don't think that it mm. is something that is that affects you. But think about this: even even if somebody says a, a, some a certain type of comment or particular comment to you, and that just kind of makes you think a certain thing for the rest of the day. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's that's a if you if you get one of those every yeah. week. That's a yeah. that's a that's a that's an anchor in your life that other people don't have, other groups right. don't have, and yeah. and really when you're talking about like when you're talking about like being successful or like mm-hmm. starting yeah. a successful business, the really the small things matter, yeah. small margins matter. Yeah. Like yeah. the that's like the thing that makes the diff- makes a difference is like mm-hmm. can you can you put in that extra ten percent of the work? Mm-hmm. Can you, can you mm-hmm. get the extra two percent of the results out that makes you you know mm-hmm. outcompete somebody else and. And those things in people's lives do do drag them down, mm. and sometimes people people discount it as being not something huge. Mm. But you just it's like it's like a it's like a it's like a dripping of a water spot. Like if if water drips drip drip mm. drip onto a piece of mm. rock, onto a rock or a boulder, mm. it'll split it in half eventually. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're reminding me like it used to be a trend. Gosh, it was like three or four years ago <laughs> to like um, really focus on self improvement in, mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley, where it's like you can get better. One percent every day, and then mm-hmm. by the end of the year, you know, you'll be two hundred fifty percent better. So exactly, right? With, yeah. and it's compound interest. It's actually, thirty-seven times. Better. Okay, there we go. Thirty-seven, 37, 37 times. times. I, I, I love that yeah. concept. Yeah, but it's like the opposite. It's true. It's like if you get one percent worse, yeah. you're getting dragged down, right? Yeah. Then, then it compounds in this way exactly where you, you can't keep up. It's it's harder to keep yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking, like, man, so much wasted brain space. Yeah, yeah. it's it's, it's wasted it's brain true. space. Yeah, it's it's wasted brain space, and yeah, that compounds. Right. It compounds. Yeah, and and that's like what we're really talking about here is like the privilege, right? Mm. That some people have that others don't have and don't yeah. realize. Um, and, um, you know, there's a book that I read last week when I was traveling to New York. It's called We're Exceptionals and it's by mm. Prati Gupta, an Indian mm. author. Um, maybe your wife should read it. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, kind of talks about like, especially like Asian immigrants, mm. like they have this immense pressure to be, because they're hailed as these role model mm. immigrants because they, you know, get educations and then they become like top professionals. They become doctors and engineers and all of that. But what we don't understand is like, one, the weight of that pressure. And also all these people still come with their baggage. Mm, and yeah. they're, um, you know, they come from different cultures in a new country where they faced a lot of discrimination. Um, and um, things are not always great in their background, mm, yeah. right? Because of maybe the hardship that they escaped and and things like that. And so um, on the surface, they might look like, okay, they're successful, but are they really successful in terms of are they happy? You know, have they lived a life that's, um, you know, they feel happy about and meaningful about? And that's... um, Pay a price to overcome that. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely pay a price. Mm. And a lot of people don't... A lot of people look at like, oh, hey, look, these people made it. So like... They should. We should have it. There's no discrimination yeah. because mm. look, look, there, there are these. They're people. They're fine. Like all these Asian okay. people, they're doing okay. They're yeah, going, they're you know, okay. Ivy League like, schools and everything. So, so there's nothing, nothing going on. But that's yeah, not true. I think entrepreneurs need to know this. Mm. Like, especially entrepreneurs who come from different backgrounds. And Houston's one of the most diverse cities Such in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and we want more uh, people from different backgrounds to take the leap. But know that there will be hardship. But yeah. hey, there's a community. There are people who've been through this. We're going to be here to help you out and yeah. um, and get that support system in place and uh, know that you're not alone when you fa- face those challenges. 100%. Many people do that. 100%. Yeah. This is one mm. thing I really like to think about. I've talked mm. to you about this, but like, uh, 
you know, the four minute mile mm-hmm. when it took mm-hmm. like decades for somebody to break the four minute mile. Mm-hmm. But the moment somebody did, took, everyone the, did. The, yeah. Then, then the year after that, I think what mm-hmm. was it? Like 30 people broke yeah. the four minute mile mm-hmm. after that first person did it. And it's, it's more of a mental barrier. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if, if you, if you see that all entrepreneurs are like people that don't look like you, then you, you might think like, Oh, this is not someplace that I fit. This mm-hmm. is not like mm-hmm. people like me don't do things like those folks do. But if you have the people that, if you have examples and role models of people, um, it could be women who are entrepreneurs, it could be folks mm. from different backgrounds, then somebody else coming up can see that and can say, oh, like, I know this is like hard for me because there's all these things that are against me, but look, that person made it. So if they can, then I, there must be a way to get there. There's mm. a path. Know? and There must and, be a path. And to bring this back full circle, you, you grew up with a lot of entrepreneurs and I think um, it's very common for kind of immigrant families to have kind of lifestyle businesses as entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, taking the leap to do a venture business is very different because, yeah. uh, you know, asymmetric outcomes, you're not, <laughs> yeah. you're not paying yourself very well for yeah. what, what you could do. Um, and so, um, you know, it's it, the hope is to be uh, an inspiration for the next generation of folks yeah. um, as you, you, you move forward. I'm looking at the clock and I want to get through one one more section on yep. Houston because we're talking about like the the international city. Um, tell us about what you're proud with uh, proud of the Houston innovation ecosystem because your 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 journey started here. Yeah. yeah, you know I I'm still pretty early here, but but I I saw the the Ion District getting mm-hmm. developed and built out, and so that's really really exciting. Activates mm-hmm. in town now, mm-hmm. and it seems like you know it just, we're at Greentown Labs, and I just in the past couple months, there are two companies that have come in to mm. the Greentown space that are from one of them from the East Coast and one of them from the West Coast. Yeah, who are they? This Mars Materials is the one. Mars Materials Coast, is one of yeah. them. <clears throat> and then another group, okay, a couple well, guys, I forget we'll what their names later. are, but they're yeah. from Pennsylvania. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they came here because, like, yeah, this is where this is where our customers are. Mm-hmm. They're gonna come here to Houston. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really cool to see because Houston, you know, I was talking about those four pillars. Mm. Um, Houston, you know, there's a you need to you need to develop a good team. Mm-hmm. Houston has a huge talent pool. Mm-hmm. Think about what is it like a quarter of the world's chemical engineers are in Houston, mm-hmm. 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 Um, and then just just all kinds of folks from technicians to engineers. A huge talent pool here that that you can pull from. And I think we we po- posted a job application and we got like two hundred applicants or something mm-hmm. like wow. that. You know, mm-hmm. within a few days. That's 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 very, where Houston is really strong at. The ecosystem is still developing. There's still a lack of sort of early stage capital here. But with with uh, COVID and all that, that's become a little bit easier. We were talking about that. Um, you can hop on a plane or you can hop on a Zoom call to to go to the coasts to to talk to the funds that are there. And I think that's where I think eighty percent of the funds we talk to are like either on the West Coast or on the East Coast. Um, and it just but just but I I see the potential here in Houston. Like there's mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but the people most people are transplants here mm-hmm. that I've met, but everybody sort of gets into the Houston spirit of like being loyal and proud of the city <laughs> and there's such a i don't know there's such a uh how, how do you how would you describe it i don't know it's like um such a loyalty to the city mm-hmm. even folks that have been here only a few years they they fall mm-hmm. in love with the city even though it's kind of an ugly city and yeah and it's, it's like, like you know yeah, you wonder why right yeah but, 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 yeah there's something there the but spirit there's some kind mm-hmm. of pride in houston mm-hmm. and 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 you really feel that i felt that when people say oh like you started this company at rice and this is a homegrown company mm-hmm. like how can we help you? Mm-hmm. People love to see that, and there's so much there's there's so much capital in the city mm-hmm. from these big oil companies and and other funds as well. Maybe not at the early stages, but in the later stages, and and it, you really feel like people want to see you succeed. 
mm-hmm. and they're really happy to see that you've you've you know you're a homegrown company and i think mm-hmm. that the ecosystem here is is really at sort of a turning point on a cusp like we're we're going to start to hit the j curve at some yeah. point you know in the, yeah. the next mm-hmm. couple of years um i'm just excited to see what happens i want to be a part of that part of the, growing the ecosystem um so that's like to me houston is like almost there um mm-hmm. in the next 10 years that'll probably be the best place for biotech companies mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. um and then hopefully for energy as well, and maybe for some other niche places. Yeah. No, I think you're speaking to kind of the Southern hospitality that Houston also yeah. has. And, um, you know, sometimes when I go to some of these uh, East Coast cities, you know, you feel the difference in culture. Like there's a little bit more like elitism. I went to this school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, whereas in Houston, like people build businesses and they're still down to earth. And like, it's, they're very easy to talk mm-hmm. to. And um, yeah. And they want to help, you know. Yeah. They want to help you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've I really felt that like people wanting to just help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of rice alums, right? Of a lot of people who are successful business owners in the Houston area, they just want to help. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's no like this hustle mentality that you get in New York. Yeah, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know. So people actually people get give to you the live, time of day here. They give the time of the day, and mm-hmm. they get to live also balanced lives. I think somehow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. definitely feel that. Mm-hmm. And, and what are some gaps that you've kind of come across? We talked about early stage capital, but are there other missing pieces in the ecosystem um, that just weren't weren't there for you? Yeah, so th- I think the only two ones, capital is the big one. That's probably the only major one that we're missing right now. But um, certainly for early stage companies that are spinning out of research labs, um, you know, ha- finding good lab space is, mm. is one challenge. Um, Greentown Labs is great because mm. there's lab space there and we're happy there. But that's for climate-focused companies. Mm. There's really no place for a biotechnology company to go to or a company in some other sector to go and find workable, flexible lab space. And so mm. I think that's one thing that's really missing and lacking here, aside from the capital part. Mm-hmm. But there's not a lot that's missing here. Mm. There's a lot here for people who are, mm. want to build a company and, and, and grow it's cheap land here. Mm-hmm. There's <laughs> a, you know, a deep labor pool here. A lot of customers and pretty much almost any sector that you can think of just located here in Houston. Um, but I would say those two things, capital and, and space, early early flexible space for, for folks who have maybe three employees, yeah. two employees. Um, that's hard to come by here. Yeah. Um, so as people follow your journey, where can they find you? On the internet? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, uh, just type in my name, Rawand Rashid, R-A-W-A-N-D, and the last name, R-A-S-H-E-E-D connect with me and reach out to me happy to talk and if, if folks are interested in in building uh, startups and, and founding companies i'm always happy to to help it's the houston spirit <laughs> so many people have given me like so many people that that are they should be really busy but they give you an hour two hours of their time it's just been super super helpful to me so i, I try to give back and, and pay that forward to other folks as well so people can reach out to me anytime i'm usually pretty responsive Awesome. Well, thanks Mm. for being here. Of Mm. course. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. You can learn more about this company on DW Insights, a marketplace for energy technologies. On the platform, you can access early new episodes and content, and you can also discover exciting technologies. If you like the show, share it with a friend or give us a review on your podcast platform. Lastly, if you have an entrepreneur in Houston that you'd like to hear more about, let us know and we'll try to bring them in. See you next week on Energy Tech Startups.